0: Chapter Seventy Three of the Old Curiosity Shop This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens Chapter Seventy Three The magic reel which, rolling on before, has led the chronicler thus far, now slackens in its pace, and stops. It lies before the goal. The pursuit is at an end it remains but to dismiss the leaders of the little crowd who have borne us company upon the road and so to close the journey foremost among them smooth Sampson brass and sally arm in arm claim our polite attention mr Sampson, then being detained as already has been shown by the justice upon whom he called and being so strongly pressed to protract his stay that he could by no means refuse remained under his protection for a considerable time, during which the great attention of his entertainer kept him so extremely close, that he was quite lost to society, and never even went abroad for exercise, saving into a small paved yard. So well, indeed, was his modest and retiring temper understood by those with whom he had to deal— and so jealous were they of his absence that they required a kind of friendly bond to be entered into by two substantial housekeepers in the sum of fifteen hundred pounds apiece before they would suffer him to quit their hospitable roof, doubting it appeared that he would return if once let loose on any other terms. Mr. Brass, struck with the humour of this jest, and carrying out its spirit to the utmost, sought from his wide connection a pair of friends, whose joint possessions fell some halfpence short of fifteen pence, and proffered them as bail. for That was the merry word agreed upon both sides. These gentlemen being rejected after twenty-four hours' pleasantry, Mr. Brass consented to remain, and did remain, until a club of choice spirits, called a grand jury, who were in the joke, summoned him to trial before twelve other wags for perjury and fraud, who in their turn found him guilty with a most facetious joy. Nay, the very populace entered into the whim, and when Mr. Brass was moving in a hackney-coach, towards the building where these wags assembled, saluted him with rotten eggs and carcasses of kittens, and feigned to wish to tear him into shreds, which greatly increased the comicality of the thing, and made him relish it the more, no doubt. To work this sportive vein still further, Mr. Brass, by his counsel, moved in arrest of judgment that he had been led to criminate himself, by assurances of safety and promises of pardon, and claimed the leniency which the law extends to such confiding natures as are thus deluded. After solemn argument, this point, with others of a technical nature, whose humorous extravagance it would be difficult to exaggerate, was referred to the judges for their decision, Samson being meantime removed to his former quarters finally some of the points were given in samson's favour and some against him and the upshot was that instead of being desired to travel for a time in foreign parts he was permitted to grace the mother country under certain insignificant restrictions these were that he should for a term of years reside in a spacious mansion where several other gentlemen were lodged and boarded at the public charge who went clad in a sober uniform of grey turned up with yellow had their hair cut extremely short and chiefly lived on gruel and light soup it was also required of him that he should partake of their exercise of constantly ascending an endless flight of stairs and lest his legs unused to such exertion should be weakened by it that he should wear upon one ankle an amulet or charm of iron these conditions being arranged he was removed one evening to his new abode and enjoyed, in common with nine other gentlemen and two ladies, the privilege of being taken to his place of retirement in one of royalty's own carriages. Over and above these trifling penalties, his name was erased and blotted out from the roll of attorneys, which Horatia has been always held in these latter times to be a great degradation and reproach, and to imply the commission of some amazing villainy. As indeed it would seem to be the case when so many worthless names remain, among its better records, unmolested. Of Sally Brass, conflicting rumours went abroad. Some said with confidence that she had gone down to the docks in male attire, and had become a female sailor. Others darkly whispered that she had enlisted as a private in the 2nd Regiment of Foot Guards and had been seen in uniform, and on duty, to wit, leaning on her musket, and looking out of a sentry-box in St. James's Park, one evening. There were many such whispers as these in circulation, but the truth appears to be that, after the lapse of some five years, during which there is no direct evidence of her having been seen at all, two wretched people were more than once observed to crawl at dusk from the inmost recesses of St. Giles's, and to take their way along the streets with shuffling steps and cowering, shivering forms, looking into the roads and kennels as they went in search of refuse food or disregarded offal. These forms were never beheld, but in those nights of cold and gloom, when the terrible spectres who lie at all other times in the obscene hiding places of London, in archways, dark vaults, and cellars, venture to creep into the streets, the embodied spirits of disease and vice and famine. It was whispered by those who should have known that these were Samson and his sister Sally, and to this day it is said they sometimes pass on bad nights in the same loathsome guise, close at the elbow of the shrinking passenger. The body of Quilp being found, though not until some days had elapsed, an inquest was held on it near the spot where it had been washed ashore. The general supposition was that he had committed suicide, and, this appearing to be favoured by all the circumstances of his death, the verdict was to that effect. He was left to be buried, with a stake through his heart, "'in the centre of four lonely roads. "'It was rumoured afterwards "'that this horrible and barbarous ceremony "'had been dispensed with, "'and that the remains had been secretly given up to Tom Scott. "'But even here opinion was divided, "'for some said Tom dug them up at midnight "'and carried them to a place indicated to him by the widow. "'It is probable that both these stories "'may have had their origin "'in the simple fact of Tom's shedding tears upon the inquest, "'which he certainly did.' extraordinary as it may appear, he manifested, besides, a strong desire to assault the jury, and, being restrained, and conducted out of court, darkened its only window by standing on his head upon the sill, until he was dexterously tilted upon his feet again by a cautious beadle. Being cast upon the world by his master's death, he determined to go through it upon his head and hands, and accordingly began to tumble for his bread. Finding, however, his English birth an insurmountable obstacle to his advancement in this pursuit, notwithstanding that his art was in high repute and favour, he assumed the name of an Italian image-lad, with whom he had become acquainted, and afterwards tumbled with extraordinary success, and to overflowing audiences. Little Mrs. Quilp never quite forgave herself the one deceit that lay so heavy on her conscience, and never spoke or thought of it but with bitter tears. Her husband had no relations, and she was rich. He had made no will, or she would probably have been poor. Having married the first time at her mother's instigation, she consulted in her second choice nobody but herself. It fell upon a smart young fellow enough, and as he made it a preliminary condition that Mrs. Ginnywin should be thenceforth an out-pensioner, they lived together after marriage with no more than the average amount of quarrelling "'and led a merry life upon the dead dwarfs' money. "'Mr. and Mrs. Garland and Mr. Abel went out as usual, "'except that there was a change in their household, "'as will be seen presently, "'and in due time the latter went into partnership "'with his friend the notary, "'on which occasion there was a dinner and a ball "'and great extent of dissipation. "'Unto this ball they happened to be invited "'the most bashful young lady that was ever seen.' with whom Mr. Abel happened to fall in love. HOW it happened, or how they found it out, or which of them first communicated the discovery to the other, nobody knows. But certain it is that in course of time they were married, and equally certain it is that they were the happiest of the happy, and no less certain it is that they deserved to be so. And it is pleasant to write down that they reared a family because any propagation of goodness and benevolence is no small addition to the aristocracy of nature, and no small subject of rejoicing for mankind at large. The pony preserved his character for independence and principle down to the last moment of his life, which was an unusually long one, and caused him to be looked upon, indeed, as the very old par of ponies. He often went to and fro with the little phaeton between Mr. Garland's and his sons, and, as the old people and the young were frequently together, had a stable of his own at the new establishment, into which he would walk of himself, with surprising dignity. He condescended to play with the children, as they grew old enough to cultivate his friendship, and would run up and down the little paddock with them, like a dog. But though he relaxed so far, and allowed them such small freedoms as caresses, or even to look at his shoes, or hang on by his tail, he never permitted any one of them to mount his back or drive him, thus showing that even their familiarity must have its limits, and that there were points between them far too serious for trifling. He was not unsusceptible of warm attachments in his later life, for when the good bachelor came to live with Mr. Garland upon the clergyman's decease, he conceived a great friendship for him, and amiably submitted to be driven by his hands without the least resistance he did no work for two or three years before he died but lived in clover and his last act like a choleric old gentleman was to kick his doctor mr swiveller recovering very slowly from his illness and entering into the receipt of his annuity bought for the marchioness a handsome stock of clothes and put her to school forthwith in redemption of the vow he had made upon his fevered bed after casting about for some time for a name which should be worthy of her he decided in favour of Sophronia Sphinx, as being euphonious and genteel, and furthermore indicative of mystery. Under this title the marchioness repaired, in tears, to the school of his selection, from which, as she soon distanced all competitors, she was removed, before the lapse of many quarters, to one of a higher grade. It is but bare justice to Mr. Swiveller to say that, although the expenses of her education kept him in straitened circumstances for half a dozen years, he never slackened in his zeal, and always held himself sufficiently repaid by the accounts he heard, with great gravity, of her advancement, on his monthly visits to the governess, who looked upon him as a literary gentleman of eccentric habits, and of a most prodigious talent, in quotation. In a word— Mr. Swiveller kept the Marchioness at this establishment until she was, at a moderate guess, full nineteen years of age. Good-looking, clever, and good-humoured, when he began to consider seriously what was to be done next. On one of his periodical visits, while he was revolving this question in his mind, the Marchioness came down to him alone, looking more smiling and more fresh than ever. Then it occurred to him, but not for the first time, that if she would marry him, how comfortable they might be. So Richard asked her. Whatever she said, it wasn't no, and they were married in good earnest that day week, which gave Mr. Swiveller frequent occasion to remark, at diverse subsequent periods, that there had been a young lady saving up for him after all. A little cottage at Hampstead being to let— which had in its garden a smoking-box, the envy of the civilized world, they agreed to become its tenants, and, when the honeymoon was over, entered upon its occupation. To this retreat Mr Chuckster repaired regularly every Sunday to spend the day, usually beginning with breakfast, and here he was the great purveyor of general news and fashionable intelligence. For some years he continued a deadly foe to Kit, protesting that he had a better opinion of him when he was supposed to have stolen the five-pound note, than when he was shown to be perfectly free of the crime, inasmuch as his guilt would have had in it something daring and bold, whereas his innocence was but another proof of a sneaking and crafty disposition. By slow degrees, however, he was reconciled to him in the end, and even went so far as to honour him with his patronage, as one who had in some measure reformed, and was therefore to be forgiven. But! He never forgot or pardoned that circumstance of the shilling, holding that if he had come back to get another, he would have done well enough, but that his returning to work out the former gift was a stain upon his moral character, which no penitence or contrition could ever wash away. Mr. Swiveller, having always been in some measure of a philosophic and reflective turn, grew immensely contemplative at times, in the smoking-box, and was accustomed at such periods to debate in his own mind the mysterious question of Sophronia's parentage. Sophronia herself supposed she was an orphan, but Mr. Swiveller, putting various slight circumstances together, often thought Miss Brass must know better than that, and, having heard from his wife of her strange interview with Quilp, entertained sundry misgivings whether that person, in his lifetime, might not also have been able to solve the riddle had he chosen. These speculations, however, gave him no uneasiness, for Sophronia was ever a most cheerful, affectionate, and provident wife to him, and Dick, excepting for an occasional outbreak with Mr. Chuckster, which he had the good sense rather to encourage than oppose, was to her an attached and domesticated husband, and they played many hundred thousand games of cribbage together. And let it be added to Dick's honour, that though we have called her Sophronia, he called her the Marchioness, from first to last, and that upon every anniversary of the day on which he found her in his sick-room, Mr. Chuckster came to dinner, and there was great glorification. The gamblers, Isaac List and Jowl, with their trusty confederate Mr. James Groves of unimpeachable memory, pursued their course with varying success, until the failure of a spirited enterprise, in the way of their profession, dispersed them in various directions, and caused their career to receive a sudden check from the long and strong arm of the law. This defeat had its origin in the untoward detection of a new associate, young Frederick Trent, who thus became the unconscious instrument of their punishment and his own. For the young man himself— He rioted abroad for a brief term, living by his wits, which means by the abuse of every faculty that worthily employed raises man above the beasts, and so degraded sinks him far below them. It was not long before his body was recognized by a stranger, who chanced to visit that hospital in Paris where the drowned are laid out to be owned, despite the bruises and disfigurements which were said to have been occasioned by some previous scuffle but the stranger kept his own counsel until he returned home, and it was never claimed or cared for. The younger brother, or the single gentleman, for that designation is more familiar, would have drawn the poor schoolmaster from his lone retreat, and made him his companion and friend. But the humble village teacher was timid of venturing into the noisy world, and had become fond of his dwelling in the old churchyard, calmly happy in his school, and in the spot, and in the attachment of her little mourner he pursued his quiet course in peace, and was, through the righteous gratitude of his friend, let this brief mention suffice for that, a poor schoolmaster no more. That friend, single gentleman, or younger brother, which you will, had at his heart a heavy sorrow, but it bred in him no misanthropy or monastic gloom. He went forth into the world, a lover of his kind. For a long, long time, It was his chief delight to travel in the steps of the old man and the child, so far as he could trace them from her last narrative, to halt where they had halted, sympathise where they had suffered, and rejoice where they had been made glad. Those who had been kind to them did not escape his search. The sisters at the school, they who were her friends, because themselves so friendless, Mrs. Jarley of the waxwork, Codlin, short, he found them all, and, trust me, the man who fed the furnace fire was not forgotten. Kit's story, having got abroad, raised him up a host of friends, and many offers of provision for his future life. He had no idea at first of ever quitting Mr. Garland's service, but, after serious remonstrance and advice from that gentleman, began to contemplate the possibility of such a change being brought about in time. A good post was procured for him, with a rapidity which took away his breath, by some of the gentlemen, who had believed him guilty of the offence, laid to his charge, and who had acted upon that belief. Through the same kind agency, his mother was secured from want, and made quite happy. Thus, as Kit often said, his great misfortune turned out to be the source of all his subsequent prosperity. Did Kit live a single man all his days, or did he marry? OF COURSE HE MARRIED, AND WHO SHOULD BE HIS WIFE, BUT BARBARA. AND THE BEST OF IT WAS, HE MARRIED SO SOON, THAT LITTLE JACOB WAS AN UNCLE, BEFORE THE calves OF HIS LEGS, ALREADY MENTIONED IN THIS HISTORY, HAD EVER BEEN ENCASED IN BROADCLOTH pantaloons. THOUGH THAT WAS NOT QUITE THE BEST EITHER, FOR OF NECESSITY THE BABY WAS AN UNCLE TOO. THE DELIGHT OF KIT'S MOTHER, AND OF BARBARA'S MOTHER, UPON THE GREAT OCCASION, IS PAST ALL TELLING finding they agreed so well on that and on all other subjects they took up their abode together and were a most harmonious pair of friends from that time forth and hadn't astley's cause to bless itself for their all going together once a quarter to the pit and didn't kit's mother always say when they painted the outside that kit's last treat had helped to do that and wonder what the manager would feel if he but knew it as they passed his house when kit had children six and seven years old there was a barbara among them and a pretty barbara she was nor was there wanting an exact facsimile and copy of little jacob as he appeared in those remote times when they taught him what oysters meant of course there was an abel own godson to the mr garland of that name and there was a dick whom mr swiveller did especially favour the little group would often gather round him of a night and beg him to tell again that story of good Miss Nell, who died. This Kit would do, and when they cried to hear it, wishing it longer, too, he would teach them how she had gone to heaven, as all good people did, and how, if they were good like her, they might hope to be there, too, one day, and to see and know her, as he had done, when he was quite a boy. Then he would relate to them how needy he used to be, and how she had taught him what he was otherwise too poor to learn, and how the old man had been used to say she always laughs at kit at which they would brush away their tears and laugh themselves to think that she had done so and be again quite merry he sometimes took them to the street where she had lived but new improvements had altered it so much it was not like the same the old house had been long ago pulled down and a fine broad road was in its place At first he would draw with his stick a square upon the ground to show them where it used to stand, but he soon became uncertain of the spot, and could only say it was thereabouts, he thought, and these alterations were confusing. Such are the changes which a few years bring about, and so do things pass away, like a tale that is told. End of Chapter 73 End of the Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens Recorded by Mill Nicholson website ACT number two SC number three dot com